Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Good to talk again. Welcome to the latest episode of The Other Hand. A lot to talk about today. I want to start by looking at some recent Irish data releases. Um, we got the export figure, exports of goods now for November yesterday, and they show that in the first 11 months of the year, Ireland's exports were down by 5.3% on the first 11 months of 22. Um, food and live animals down 0.7%. Chemicals down 4.6%. And within that chemical component, we have organic chemicals down 17.5% and medical and pharmaceutical products down 3.7%. So we, we are seeing this ongoing post-COVID adjustment. Electrical machinery is down by 40.8%, okay? And if you look at the geographic breakdown of what's happening, our exports to China last year, in the first 11 months, exports to China down 33% with a sharp decline in the machinery and transport equipment component. So I'm not quite sure what's going on there with the trade in electrical machinery to China, but it's having a significant impact. But the overall picture really is of a export sector that actually suffered its first reversal in 2023 that we've seen for some years. And of course, while this is dominated by multinational activities, um, it is, as I've explained before, the reason why GDP expected to contract last year. Okay. And the chances are it could actually contract again this year depending, of course, what happens on the export side. Uh, one point of note is the trade with Great Britain. Exports up by 4.5%. So we're still growing our exports into that market, particularly on the food and live animal side. But our imports from the UK down by 10.9%. So to put that the other way, Great Britain exports to Ireland down by 10.9%. So I guess one could say that there is an impact from Brexit there. There's a lot happening 
on the inflation front, um, we got Irish inflation yesterday for December. It increased from 3.9% to 4.6%. Recreation and culture, which was dominated this time by package holidays. Um, package holidays increased by 11% in the month of December and 46.4% higher than a year ago. I actually wasn't sure people were still going on package holidays. Um, in February, the Central Statistics Office here is launching a new consumer price inflation index. They go, they go about every five years. And in fact, the last time it happened was 2016. But they go and rebase the components of the consumer price index because over time, the percentage of our income that we spend on certain things does change. And they try and readjust the consumer price index to take account of changing consumer patterns. But anyway, there's one coming up in February. Um, but I'm, I'm just curious as to package holidays, what sort of weighting they will get in February. I'm, I'm not sure, like you, Jim, about why people do package holidays these days. I've got a theory that's not backed up by any data, only by, by casual observation, really, which is that post-pandemic, people are traveling more. Um, there seems to be a sort of solid attitude towards spending money uh, when it comes to traveling. And you can see that in airline prices, for example. Anybody that's got on an airplane, particularly long haul, will have seen massive increases in prices over the course of the last year. And I think people are doing more exotic holidays and longer distance holidays for which they go to specialist agents for uh, the, the complexities of their long haul travel. And I think that's possibly one of the factors at work here in the UK. I'm not sure if they exist in Ireland. We have organizations such as Trail Finders, which if you, if you want to do uh, fairly complicated things that they help you out. And they're very good, actually. This is, I'm, I'm not an agent for trail finders or any of them, but th uh, they are very good indeed in finding some of the out-of-the-way places that people seem to want to go to more. So I suspect that is at least part of it. But, but travel is one of those things that people are doing more of. You can see that in all sorts of different ways. As I say, the, the actual price of it is, is just gone through the roof. Um, and it's interesting also that people, uh, individuals rather than business people, are also traveling at the front of the plane rather than the back of the plane as well. Business class fares, despite the fact that people work from home, people use video conferencing more for business purposes, people as individuals are paying for themselves to go at the front of the plane much more than they ever did. Try getting a business class fare, fare to North America at the moment and you'll be shocked by how much it actually costs. It's always been expensive. It's now spectacularly expensive so a changing pattern of consumer behavior there i think explains part of what's going on inflation here last year averaged 6.3 percent okay um that was down from 7.8 percent in 22 so it's 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 a high rate but the, the point is that notwithstanding the blip in december you know it has been trending downwards all year um one of the i guess it's much more important to think about what 2024 is going to look like. And energy is obviously always one that's difficult to um, anticipate because it is so subject to uh, geopolitical events. And the Middle East situation obviously is central to that and the Red Sea situation. But if you look at the other components of inflation here, 
you know, it is likely that mortgage rates will start to come down in the second half of this year. And I know we're going to get on to discuss um, interest rate policy um, a little bit later on in the podcast, but I would expect mortgage rates to come down. Um, we are seeing a price war breaking out here between the energy supply companies. So we've seen a couple of the companies announce significant cuts in electricity and gas prices um, over the coming months. So obviously that's going to have a downward impact on inflation. So notwithstanding, as I say, that blip in December, um, I would expect um, the headline inflation rate here to come down significantly as 2024 progresses. As I say, the big imponderable there really is what happens on the energy side. Um, the blip we saw in Irish inflation in December um, is happening everywhere. Uh, this morning, we got UK inflation going up from 39 to 4%. Um, alcohol and tobacco had a significant impact there for some reason. We saw European or Eurozone inflation jump from 2.4% to 2.9% in December. So the, the, the upward blip in December has occurred everywhere. Um, but the expectation is that into January, February, the downtrend will recommence everywhere. Uh, but it is giving central bankers an opportunity to call a halt to the massive market enthusiasm we saw towards the end of last year about how quickly interest rates were going to be cut. Yeah, Jim, this is very important because it raises a number of questions. The first of which is one for you and me, actually, because we've both been somewhat sceptical of this narrative that emerged last year from various quarters, not least the central banks, that the last mile of getting inflation down would be the hardest. We wondered why people thought that was so, and we gave our reasons why we thought it wouldn't be as hard as some people think. But the evidence over the last few weeks and the last couple of days is that the last mile crowd, um, so far at least, are right. I don't know whether you'd agree with that. Because as you say, in in the UK in particular, we've got this, uh, we've got headlines this morning about the shock rise in inflation. I'm not quite sure why it is such a shock, because as you say, it was food and alcohol. And that was all to do with budgeted fiscal policy uh, for increasing taxes on tobacco and booze in the annual budget that we had in the autumn. So it, it shouldn't have been that much of a surprise. It's a bit more worrying that uh, core services inflation has ticked up again. I'm not worried. And the reason why I'm not worried is twofold. One is the generalized slowdown. You hinted at part of that with your discussion of the trade data there. I think Ireland is an excellent bellwether for what's happening to the world economy as the quintessential small open economy. Its exports are slowing down, Jim, as, as you rightly described there. And I think that's because world economic activity is sluggish, to say the least. And that's to do with China, that's to do with Europe. There are lots of reasons and regions where the slowdown is actually happening. We're not in recession territory, but there isn't, with the exception of the United States, much growth out there anywhere. And the second reason why I'm optimistic on inflation, uh, apart from the overall economic background, is the second factor that you mentioned, which is energy prices. Now, that, of course, is linked to the situation in the Middle East, and that ebbs and flows. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, flowing over the last few days with the British and American attacks on the Houthi rebels. 
and the way in which that conflict, people worry about escalation and ask the question, will it escalate? And the people who ask that question, I think, are not paying attention because clearly it has escalated. Escalation is here. Uh, there are concerns about what's going to happen in Lebanon. There are reported to be 100,000 Hezbollah fighters ready to go to war with Israel should Iran give the go-ahead for them to use their 150,000 rockets that they have of various types all pointing at Israel. And if that happens, then I think we are in for, for some serious, serious escalation. So far, the escalation has been moderate, shall we say. I use that word advisedly because people are dying, and so you need to, you need to be careful in your use of language here. But the all-important indicator of how far escalation is going to affect us, putting it very brutally, if you like, uh, because we're not in the firing line of any of these missile attacks from it, from wherever they are occurring. It's the oil price, Jim. And we saw when America and Britain attacked the Houthis, the oil price ticked up a bit. But since then, it's fallen. And we have the all-important West Texas Intermediate, the American oil price down at about $71 as we speak. It's down 2% today. These things go up and down every day, so we don't want to get too wrapped up in hour-by-hour hour, or even day-by-day day movements. But the fact that the oil price hasn't spiked in any material way since escalation happened, I think is encouraging from an economic and particular inflation perspective. And for us here in Europe, it's not just the oil price, of course. It's the natural gas price. And there, the news is very good. We're below 30 euros per megawatt hour. That's the way we measure these things in terms of the spot gas price. It's very volatile. It goes all over the place. And again, you don't want to read too much movement in, into any one day's action. But today, for example, natural gas prices are down 3%. They're below 30 euros, as I say, which is getting down towards the lows that we have seen really over the past couple of years. So that's good news. So if that continues, the fall in energy prices says a couple of very important things. One, it's that barometer of just how bad the situation is going to get in the Middle East for uh, um, the world economy, if you like. And uh, as I say, the barometer for me is the oil price. And so far, that's been well behaved. And we hope that that's going to continue. And the fall in the gas price is also encouraging because natural gas is affected directly and indirectly by what's happening in terms of shipping costs. And there the news, of course, isn't good because uh, a lot of freighters, uh, ships are having to take the long route round Africa rather than come up through the Suez Canal. And freight costs are rising and people are talking about another supply shock. Remember that the inflation that we've been experiencing over the past couple of years has been a supply shock, largely pandemic-induced, um, but also because of the war in Ukraine and that boost to energy prices, which, as I say, is now dissipating, if not dissipated. Uh, so one central banker, at least in Europe, an ECB council member, has said explicitly that the situation in the Red Sea will delay rate cuts, and he said that it may even delay rate cuts for all of 2024. I thought that was a ridiculous forecast, to be honest, because nobody can possibly know that with any degree of confidence at all. And his more sober colleagues, particularly Christine Lagarde, are saying that um, the markets got ahead of themselves at the end of last year. And although rate cuts will come this year, she has said that now. She, th she has hinted that she thinks the summer is the most likely start. 
But all of the markets are now pushing out rate cuts rather than bringing them forward. Markets definitely got ahead of themselves at the end of last year, as we have said a couple of times in recent podcasts. So at the moment, we can look forward to rate cuts. But yet again, the markets are readjusting their probabilities for when they will start and the extent to which they will take place. We're now seeing rate cuts being pushed back by a month or two towards the middle of the year for when they start. And the extent to which they fall over the rest of the year has also been shaded. We're not seeing quite so much uh, in these forward prices, um, rate cuts. So that affects all markets, equity markets, continue their ropey start to the year. Not not awful. Ropey is probably as good a word as I can come up with at the moment. But equity markets today are off in Europe quite a bit, actually, as a result of these changed interest rate expectations. So this story is going to ebb and flow depending on news flow from the Middle East. It's going to uh, really depend, I think, on what happens to energy prices. And provided we don't get the escalation and uh, uh, an even bigger supply shock than we've already got. I would remain confident that that last mile isn't going to be that difficult. But I must, Jim, I must admit, Jim, that the, I'm, I'm getting a wee bit more nervous about the situation and about the supply shock because we are getting stories of factories having to close for a week or two. We are getting stories about cost increases as a result of freight rates going through the roof. So, are you still sanguine about the last mile? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I am. And I, I recognize the potential shocks. Um, you know, Christine Lagarde has come out and said that the ECB is likely to cut rates in the summer. Okay, so that was as explicit as a central banker could possibly be. But um, you, you were mentioning the I- impact of oil prices on inflation. And ju- just say, Chris, oil, price, oil prices were to spike to $90, $100 a barrel because of a much more serious escalation of the Middle East situation and of the Red Sea situation. If that were to happen, I mean, okay, it obviously would push up headline inflation, but the economic damage it would do to a global economy that is, with the exception of the United States, is struggling at the moment. I mean, China is struggling. The Eurozone is struggling. The UK is struggling. The US is slowing, but it's still doing reasonably well. But the negative economic impact of that sort of escalation in oil prices, I would have thought, would far outweigh the negative impact of higher inflation and that it shouldn't influence central bank monetary policy. Am I missing something? No, I don't think you are. 
Um, I think the central bankers are looking for excuses to delay rate cuts because they're very nervous about getting it wrong again. They got it very badly wrong in the wake of the first supply shocks and, in their view, didn't put interest rates up by nearly enough or, in particular, quickly enough. Now, there's even debate about that because I think some economists, and I have some sympathy for this, actually, believe that if they just left well alone and maybe tweaked monetary policy a bit, inflation was going to do what it was going to do independently of what they did to interest rates because it was that supply shock. It was going to go up and it was going to come down pretty much independently of of what central bankers um, did or did not do. We'll never know. That's always coulda, woulda, shoulda. Um, So I do think, however, that behaviorally, psychologically, central bankers are very twitchy about getting it wrong on the downside as well as getting it wrong on the upside. And as a result, are saying to themselves, if we're going to make a mistake, we're going to make the mistake of leaving rates higher for longer than they need to be. And if that is the case, we'd rather make that kind of mistake than cutting rates too soon, too quickly. So any excuse to leave rates where they are, I think they're going to take, and they're going to ignore any reason to cut rates that comes along their way. I think that that for them to be starting to cut rates in March or April would require a slew of really bad economic news over the next few months. We might get that. I don't think we will. I think the economic news will stay as it is, which is essentially for softness in the world economy. And that won't be enough to give them the prod that they need to cut rates. I think they should be cutting rates. Your specific question is, if in, if the oil price went to 90 or $100 a barrel, I think it's a really good one because we have seen oil prices in that range relatively recently. That would give a short-term boost to inflation, which would give them another excuse not to cut rates again. And the economic consequences that you rightly refer to, which is that that essentially would be a tax on the world economy and would slow economic growth, those effects would take longer to come through. So there's a timing issue here. I think that that this would give them the excuse that they need and eventually the economic consequences that you refer to would come through and they will be uh, at 90 to 100 dollars a barrel they'll, they i think will be seen to have made another mistake in not cutting rates and in not ignoring that oil price rise the thing that worries me though is if it's worse than that if something really kicked off really badly in the middle east awful that would be for the people concerned and indeed for the, for the whole world oil prices could easily go to 150 dollars jim And if that were the case, then we are in serious trouble because central banks are then faced with an impossible dilemma because that obviously would push up short-term inflation massively above target, but the economic consequences would be absolutely dreadful and the world economy would go into recession. So how do you cope with that as a central banker? Because those two things would happen on very, very different timescales. So that's something that we certainly hope don't happen. But serious escalation in the Middle East would result in oil prices going through the roof, much bigger than that 90 to $100 range that you mentioned. And that's when I think that we are in serious trouble. I mean, the economics of that are bad enough, but the geopolitics, of course, the reasons for why oil prices were at, should they go to $150, the geopolitical reasons for that would be catastrophic. Yeah, I think you described the 1980s after the 73 and 79 oil price shocks. Yeah, you're in that kind of a situation yeah, whereby you've got economic uh real problems and geopolitical catastrophe i'll be pulling down my college textbook the economics of stagflation by michael bruno and jeffrey sachs at that stage chris the 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 thing that strikes me also at the moment is 
Um, and we, we've discussed this and it really never fails to amaze me just how stupid the markets are. Um, the markets just got so carried away towards the end of last year um, based on, you know, inflation coming down. They started to build in interest rate cuts as early as February or March. We saw a massive spike in equity and bond markets in the final weeks of 2023. Um and then, of course, we get a few disappointing inflation numbers in January and, you know, the markets do an about turn. I mean, maybe I'm saying this with the benefit of hindsight, but knowing how central bankers operate, it was never possible, really, that they were going to turn around in February or March and start cutting interest rates again. Because central bankers, as I've observed them over the years, they generally wait to see for quite some time the impact of the policy measures they put in place before they reverse course. That is the cautious nature of the animal. And, uh, you know, the, the, the market's stupidity, actually, and irrationality. But I guess it is that stupidity and irrationality that actually makes money for people who speculate in markets. Yeah, I, I'm reluctant to describe markets as stupid because, you, you know, you're talking about millions and millions of actors uh, making decisions, making guesses, making bets, making investments, all with different motivations, different information sets, the same information set. And the day-to-day -day volatility of markets is inexplicable. You are trying to analyze and describe noise. The amazing thing for me is not so much that this happens, but that, that there are an army of incredibly well-paid analysts and strategists out there whose job it is to make up stories for why the markets did what they did over the last 10 minutes. And that you cannot do. So when you see headlines about why markets went up, why markets went down, they might be right, but more often than not, they're just wrong. You're looking at the an emergent process, the outcome of millions and millions of individual decisions that could be going on in all sorts of different ways. But yes, to the extent that there was a narrative at the back end of last year that we're off to the races again from a stock market perspective, a bond price perspective, falling interest rate perspective, uh, that things were going to get really so much better, so much more quickly because central banks were going to be slashing interest rates. We said it at the time and we'll reiterate now that was always never going to happen. I suspect it was the narrative that was wrong rather than the markets. People were trying to explain what the markets were doing. Who knows why the markets were doing what they were doing? I don't think anybody does, and I don't think anybody ever will. Over time, these things settle down, and what we're going through at the moment is a settling down process where the markets, the narrative for the market behavior has changed. And I think the, the narrative now is a more reasonable one the story is more consistent with what is actually going on. So narratives change, Mark, which is always fun to do, and we do it, and, and people are always demanding narratives from us, but we always, I think, heavily caveat our stories, our explanations, because we, never, we admit the uncertainties. But in terms of trying to say why markets do what they do over short periods, and by that I could mean you know a year at least, uh, I don't think you can come up with a compelling narrative that is consistently correct. If you do come up with the right one, it's usually by accident. Chris, talking about irrationality, um, I was watching on TV last night various news channels in different countries, voters in the caucus in Iowa being interviewed um, about Trump 
And the narrative that kept coming across was, number one, they all voted for Trump. But number two, um, they were saying how bad things have got in the United States since Trump left office. And, um, and, and as a consequence, they can't wait for Trump to be back in power um, at the beginning this time next year. Um, Trump won 90 out of the 91 counties in Iowa. Uh, Nikki Haley won the other one, which contains the University of Iowa. So you'd expect a little bit more liberal thinking in. But even there, Jim, a lot of those university types voted for Trump. One of the emergent things that's come Mm -hmm. out of this process has been the way in which graduates who traditionally have not voted for Trump. I'm not passing any qualitative or quantitative judgments about the intelligence or otherwise of voters, but typically the data tells you that the typical vote Trumper is not a graduate and a lot of them are now voting for Trump, which is a really interesting development. It is. And and actually, if you look at the age profile, uh, comparing what he got in Iowa in 2016 to now, um, the before the 2016 election, I mean, the, the, the growth he has experienced in, I think, all age categories is quite extraordinary. I, I don't know what's going to happen in New Hampshire. Um, Nikki Haley would be expected to do better there, um, given her more liberal credentials, I guess, in a Republican context. Um, and then we're on to South Carolina, where Trump is probably going to win down there. So it's it's virtually over, isn't it? I mean, Trump... it looks that way. And yeah. the thing that we're talking about here, with respect to Trump, and the thing that we were just talking about in the context of markets, is narratives and their importance. And this just shows you how important the stories that we tell ourselves actually are. And the story that Americans are telling themselves is that under Biden, things have got much worse. Now that flies totally in the face of all of the data. For the vast majority of Americans, things have got an awful lot better from a jobs, from an incomes, from a whole host of perspectives. The fly in the ointment, of course, has been inflation and everybody is affected by high, high prices. And people, I think, are responding to that in particular and are not responding to all the other ways in which things have got an awful lot better for Americans. Um, and so I think it speaks to the modern age that we live in which is that the, the, the dominant thing is the narrative, and the narrative can have no connection whatsoever with fact-based real life. The best example I can cite, of course, close to home is Brexit. Um, there's still the, a few people in the UK that believe Brexit was good for the UK, socially, politically, and economically. All of the data says that it wasn't on all three headings. But people aren't convinced by data, are they, Jim? They're convinced by stories, by narratives. We have to respond if we're going to try to convince people uh, of our own point of view. We need to respond to the narrative rather than simply using data. We have to start, I think, by saying, I understand how you feel, but what you feel should be adjusted in in light of the data. I'm not quite sure how geeky numbers-based analysts like ourselves do that, but we, we one of the lessons of the last few years from financial market behavior through to Brexit, Donald Trump, the rise of right-wing populism everywhere, um, is that simply citing what we consider to be facts just doesn't work. It doesn't change minds. And so therefore, we need to change hearts, not minds. And how people like us go about that, I think, is is the challenge. But people like us have lost the argument. Yeah, big time. There, there is no doubt about that. Um, it, it's the narrative, whoever puts out the strongest narrative, 
um, is the victor. Doesn't there is no doubt about that. Um, it's I, I know in Davos from what I can pick up. Um, there is a lot of discussion, obviously, about the Middle East situation and about Ukraine, uh, but also at the prospects of Trump being back in government. And I think most sane people at a global level would recognize that Trump back in the presidency uh, would be bad news for the global economic and political can order. I, can I challenge yeah. you there, Jim? Because I think, I think that's the mistake that people like you and me fall into, is that we use phrases like, most sane people know that Trump would be an absolute disaster for the world economy. Now, that immediately puts the backup of the average Trump voter, because implicitly or explicitly, you've just described them as insane. And that in that way, we're never going to persuade them that Trump is going to be bad for them because we've called them idiots, we've denigrated them, we've sneered at them. And I think we've got to stop doing that. I'm not having a go at you, by the way. I, I, I do this all the time as well. And I've just been thinking as deeply as I can about these things, about how I might persuade just one person that I know that Brexit was a bad idea, one person that I know, and I do know potential Trump voters in North America, that it's a bad idea. And we've got to find a different way of appealing to them by simply calling them nutters is not going to do it, is it? <laughs> no, it's not actually. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what are we going to do? I accept the slap on the wrist. Um, there, there was, I, I know somebody you read a lot in the Financial Times, Janan Ganesh. Um, yeah, great that. writer. Yeah, he's a great writer. But he did a piece yesterday in the Financial Times uh, basically trying to allay some of the concerns people have about Trump and his global view. Um, he was arguing basically that America, um, even under Trump, will not retreat from the world and his main argument is that unilateralism is not the same as isolationism. Uh, that, in other words, even if Trump is re-elected, that um, he will not adopt a isolationist approach. You know, his, America will remain a significant player in global events, um, and particularly given its preoccupation with China and the threat from China at the moment. So I guess for those who are really worried about the impact that Trump might have on the global political order, uh, this article by Janine Ganesh actually does, would make you feel slightly more hopeful about the future. Uh, but I say slightly because I, I just look at what Trump did the last time in terms of global geopolitical relations, particularly the antagonism that he demonstrated towards uh, Europe, which is traditionally a strong ally of the United States, um, I fear under another four years of Trump that that relationship would be further damaged. Uh, and that does worry me because I, I just think in, in the face of the growing threat from China, from Russia, um, indeed from India in some respects, uh, that the West never needed to be more united in the face of these threats rather than disunited and Trump certainly has disunited. Um, yeah, we're, we're running out of time, so I don't think we should do it here. But I do think perhaps the next podcast, or half the next podcast, should be devoted to Trump 2.0, the second Trump presidency, and examine those arguments. Because on the one hand, you've got the immediate 10% tariff on all US imports from anywhere in the world that would affect all of us any country like Ireland that exports a lot to the United States. He's promised to be a dictator on day one. He has said that he would do that. His, just one day, though. 
just for one day. I will only be a dictator for a day. An interesting promise, an interesting narrative, if you if you like. Uh, his vow to staff all of the important positions in the FBI, the CIA, the Justice Department, with his acolytes who would then wage war on the Biden crime family. I choose my words carefully, and I'm quoting there. Uh, the various ways in which he would become a dictator and violate the norms of democracy, his promise to pull out of NATO, all of these things fly in the face of what Ganesh seems to be arguing. So let's try and tease that out in the next podcast, Jim. I think we're out of time, unless you've got anything else that you'd like to say today. Um, It was a great conversation. Yeah, Chris, just uh, one final point. Li Qiang, uh, the Premier of China, landed in Dublin last night. He stepped off the largest passenger plane ever to land in the 84-year history of Dublin Airport, a Boeing 7478. And um, he was Okay, and he flew across the world from an incredibly polluting nation in an incredibly um, large aircraft. And, you know, arguably um, some pollution was generated by that to be greeted at the steps of the plane by the Minister for the Environment, Eamon Ryan. Uh, I just think the irony is extraordinary. Uh, Earlier this week, I published a report I did for Aer Lingus on the planning restrictions Uh, around Dublin Airport at the moment. And, you know, I was arguing if these planning restrictions, we can talk about these at greater length at some stage, but if these planning restrictions are actually adhered to, that it will seriously um, limit the growth of Irish tourism and indeed impact Irish foreign direct investment over the coming years. But the blowback I got from the environmental agenda was extraordinary. Yeah, Um well, I would say to them, give up eating meat before you stop flying. That'll have a much bigger impact on the environment. The statistics, the data, again, say that uh, aviation is a surprisingly low contributor to global emissions. It does contribute, absolutely. But uh, the thing that you've got to have a look at, folks, it, it, your dietary habits. But again, we'll talk about that at greater length. Jim, it's been great. You're you're talking to somebody here coming from a farming background. Which which, which is why I'm trying to cut the conversation very short. (laughs) Exactly. Good to talk, Chris. Cheers, buddy.